question I'm about to ask you, I looked up to find the answer in the dictionary today, or I don't know how many of the umpteenth time. What is a Christian? You'll be amazed when you look in the dictionary and see what it says. It says, and I quote from Webster, one who professes belief in the teachings of Christ. Is that a true definition of what is a Christian? By that definition, guess who is a Christian? Satan the devil. James 2.19 says, you believe in God or that God is one. Well, the demons believe also, and they tremble. If you will turn to Matthew, the seventh chapter, in verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, they recognize him. They're going to say to him face to face in the great white throne judgment and in the time of his arrival of this earth, have we not prophesied in thy name? A lot more than Satan ever does, except that Satan inspires many false ministers and false Christs, and they, masquerading as real ministers of Christ, are actually inspired of Satan the devil, as it says in the second half of the 13th chapter of Revelation concerning the lamb-like beast that arose that appeared like a lamb but had horns and spoke as a dragon, meaning that Satan the devil, who is identified as the dragon of Revelation 12 and verse 9, inspires this false Christ that we know to be the Vatican, and we know to be a succession of popes claiming the primacy of Peter from the days of Constantine right down through the Dark Ages and the Habsburgs and right down to today, to Pope John Paul II, who claims to be a man of peace. And they will say, in your name have we not cast out demons, and in your name done many wonderful works, schools, hospitals, colleges, homes for unwed mothers, bridge back and halfway houses for drug addicts, AIDS research, I mean all kinds of wonderful things. Haven't we done all of these things? Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. You see, being a Christian is a two-way street. You can claim to know God, but does God know you? Now, I'm not saying that he cannot know you, and in this sense, Jesus Christ is not saying, I never knew your name, but he's saying, I never knew you as one of mine. I never knew you as a member of my family, as a member of, like my brother or my sister, I never knew you in a familiar sense as a Christian. Sure, I knew your name. I knew you were out there because God can know all about all of us. But he does not say that he recognizes them, that he gives them any kind of authenticity. So what is this telling you? Well, people who claim to know God and who claim to know the Bible and who claim to preach it and teach it can sometimes be completely artificial. Frankly, most of them are. Ninety-some percent of them are. I don't know whether there are two out of 200 who are absolutely, completely convicted and convinced to the depths of their being in their private prayers, in their almost awesome awareness, when they will sit and maybe talk to their own wife, Honey, do you realize that I am called of Almighty God to do what I'm doing? What an overwhelming thought that is. What a frightening thought that is. How awful it would be if I didn't continue to do what I'm doing. You know, you really wonder about some of these clowns you see on Sunday morning television. Do you really think that's the way they talk to their spouses in private? Do you think that's what goes on in their minds in private? 
Now let your mind dwell on the heads and the leaders of certain church organizations and structures and corporations and so on all over this country and in others. Let me put it another way on the opposite side of that coin. Does anyone in this room think that every single day the Pope gets up and says, Boy, I'll tell you, I'm really putting it over on them today. I know that I'm the false prophet. I know that I'm going to be directing the beast. I know that I am going to be sitting astride this horrible beast in Europe, the United States of Europe, and in my nefarious, evil, genocidal plans, I'm going to usher in a new holocaust, destroy all the Jews, and destroy Jerusalem and burn it to the ground. Anybody think the Pope gets up and says that about himself? I, that'd be ridiculous. Of course not. The Pope in Rome, no matter what his background is, and there are an awful lot of really iffy things about his politics, especially during World War II and in Poland, and what he has known about the Roman Catholic Church, and how, whether or not he was complicit with Pope Pius XII with regard to the dead silence, the deafening silence on the part of the Roman Catholic Church while Hitler carried out his pogroms. But this man, who was a young man in Poland at that time, and always very, very active, and came up into the priesthood in the church in Krakow, certainly knew a very great deal about that, and Poland was where most of those camps were located, and those Catholics simply turned their heads the other way, and only in a very few rare occasions did certain priests here and there try to help those Jews, but by and large, they didn't do anything about it one way or the other. So the other side of the coin is that there are people who are, I believe, identified in prophecy as false Christs and false prophets who don't really know that's what they are. Is it possible for you to be self-deceived? Well... Some of you sitting in this room used to be Catholics. Were you a basically good person? Were you a sincere person? Did you love your mom and dad who told you all about Catholicism? Did you love your family who took you off to the Roman Catholic Church? Were you among good people? Was the priest a pretty good guy? Did you love and respect the nuns and their habits who taught you as a child in a Catholic parochial school? Sure you did. And what about people who can become interested in the program, write for literature, begin to search the Bible, and we have them, and I get letters all the time from people that say, especially in Canada, I was a Roman Catholic, I was brought up in the Catholic religion, and these are good, decent people, but they were deceived. The word deceived doesn't mean evil, it doesn't mean lacking character, it doesn't mean that you're plotting something with a dirty, filthy, hidden agenda. It means you can be the nicest guy or the nicest girl, the nicest person in the world, but you just don't know any better. My dad used to put it this way, what you don't know, you don't know that you don't know it. You're ignorant of the fact that you don't know something. Now, I know that I don't know how to wire a telephone switchboard. I know that I don't know how to program our mainframe com uh, computer. I know that. But I'm aware that I don't know it. Now, when there are things that you don't know that you are completely unaware of not knowing, then you're really in a terrible situation, and that's exactly the way the millions in this world are about religion. Over in Luke 6:46, I won't turn to it, Jesus said something similar, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If you'll turn to 1 John, the second chapter, we will see what is the Bible definition of a Christian as opposed to what the dictionary says, because the dictionary obviously 
gives a definition which would make Satan the devil into a Christian. Does Satan the devil believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ? It says, one who professes believes in the teachings of Christ. Does Satan the devil believe in the teachings of Christ? Oh, absolutely. He knows every one of them. He was there to destroy this entire world long before the creation of Adam. He was there at the recreation of the surface of the earth at the time Adam was created on the sixth day of recreation, reconstruction week. He was there in the Garden of Eden on the first Sunday service that was ever conducted on the face of the earth after the Sabbath service. And the Sunday service was when Satan the devil, the Nakash, which merely means in Hebrew a whispering enchanter or charmer, said to Adam and Eve what she did, to Eve first, Oh, has not God kept from you all these beautiful trees for fruit in the garden? I believe that was probably a Sunday when that occurred. On the first day following creation week when Adam and Eve were walking around in the garden. And that's what occurred. Satan was there at the birth of Jesus Christ and tried to destroy him through Herod. Satan was there at his baptism and immediately took him, actually allowed, Christ allowed himself to be conveyed by Satan's spiritual power, defying gravity, inertia, the wind, and took him to the top of Mount Hermon, took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Does Satan believe in the fact that Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ? Didn't Jesus put it this way, blessed are your eyes, blessed are you, because you, seeing, have believed. Blessed are those who not seeing shall believe. That's what he said to the disciples after finally even doubting Thomas was convicted that Jesus had come back from the grave and was in fact alive. You have not seen, and you say you believe. That's faith, isn't it? You've never seen God. You've never seen an angel. You've never seen Jesus Christ. You've seen biblical scriptures. Very few of you have studied back into the origin preservation, transmission, translation of the text, the Valorium Bible, the Breaches Bible, the Chains Bible, the Great Bible, the Ransdawe Bible, the Vulgate. You probably are unfamiliar with terms like the Hexateuch or the Pentateuch. You're probably unfamiliar with the symbols like LXX and so on, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. But Satan the devil, who was there throughout all this period of time, knows the Bible backwards and forwards, knows exactly where we got it, and the fact that it is, in its original intent, where you can get rid of some of the translator's errors, the word of Almighty God. He could quote it to you backwards. What is the difference? Satan the devil is in rebellion against God, and he hates God, he is jealous of God, and he believes that God is incredibly wrong and unfair. So when he said, has not God denied you poor people of all these trees, all this wonderful fruit that is here to eat in the garden? Oh, no, 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 said Eve, like many a housewife, to the salesman selling encyclopedias or mother craft books at the front door. You have got it all wrong. Let me straighten you out. That isn't what he really said. He just said, we can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that we eat thereof, something terrible is going to happen. We're going to die. Well, he chuckled, God knows more than that. Dios sabe más. It is in Spanish. God knows more. God knows better than that. You won't die. The opposite is going to happen. You'll be like God is, and you'll be able to tell the difference between good and evil. 
You'll be able to decipher everything. You'll really be in the know. You will have the savvy to put whatever spin on human events and circumstances and situations and everything there is about you in nature and among all the animals and the flora and fauna, and you will understand good and evil like God does. It's something to make you wise, something to be desired to give you knowledge. And so they gave in to it. Satan the devil was there at the temptation of Christ, as I said, in the wilderness, and he was there to enter personally through some kind of a means that we do not know, where he could just like sort of be there in a spiritual essence and just step inside the body of and take over the mind of Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas is walking along, but the person that is directing his steps was living in him like a parasite and was Satan the devil. And Satan was there trying to kill Christ. Does Jesus Christ then know about the beliefs and the teachings, I'm sorry, does Satan the devil know about the beliefs and the teachings of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? James 2.19, I mentioned before, says, and I won't turn to that, that the demons believe, or the devils, it says, it should be demons in plural, believe and tremble because they know what eventually is going to be their reward. In 1 John 2 and in verse 3, hereby we do know that we know him, Bible. Not first Garner Ted, two, three, but the Word of God that was here way back before those Bibles I mentioned to you, the breaches, the chains, Bible, the English translation out of the Latin, way back before Latin was ever invented as a language, way back when it was written in Greek. And it said, Hereby we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and there are millions who do, and keep not his commandments, is a liar. Does Billy Graham say that he knows God, that he knows Christ? Sure. Does Oral Roberts? Sure. Does Dr. Schuler? Of course. Do all these other evangelists, uh, Robertson and uh, Tilton and all the rest of them, say they know the Lord? Did Jim Baker? They know the Lord. Do they keep his commandments? I can demonstrate to you, we've done it continually over the years that I taught college classes, without ever allowing the student body, the classes, to use any scripture after the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus. And we confined ourselves from Genesis 1 to Exodus 19 before the giving of the Decalogue, and we were able to establish as a class project, by strong inference or by direct reference, not only that sin was in existence and known and categorized, but that every one of the Ten Commandments was identified by human error, human sin, and by punishments from God prior, and that includes the fourth one, prior to the giving of the law at Sinai. Another method we used is to go back and to prove who was the lawgiver. Who was the one who wrote in the tables of stone Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And said, it is on the level as a sin if you break it with murder or with having an idol in front of you and bowing down to it. The one who became Jesus Christ. Now, do you know what the argument is? Are some of you aware of comparative theology and religion? Do you know the way some of the Sunday churches argue about this? Well, on one occasion in the last statements Jesus made at the Last Supper that you read of in the last closing chapters of the book of John. He talked about how the disciples ought to love one another, and he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, and so on. 
So the Protestants read this verse, Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And they say since he gave this new commandment that we should love one another, all he really means by that is, here's the way we know Christ, if we love one another. And so they completely deny that he is the God of the Old Testament, that this does mean the Ten Commandments, and that it includes the Sabbath. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. Does Billy Graham keep his commandments? He may keep nine of them perfectly. Let's give him that. He really may. He may strive to keep nine of those as perfectly as he knows how. Billy Graham may not have any need to covet because he's a wealthy man. He may have a wonderful wife and not be tempted in that direction. He may have a wonderful life with her and with his children and grandchildren. He may be a good man, a decent man, a man of high character. I'll give him that, which means he's way ahead when it comes time for the great general white throne resurrection and that he will accept the truth with alacrity and not rebel against God when finally it's pointed out to him what his major error, what his great flaw and his great sin really was. Is Billy Graham a commandment keeper? No, he's not. Then what is he? You don't want to say it even in your mind, do you, because of all the buildup I just gave you. You don't want to say that Billy Graham is a sinner. That Billy Graham is breaking God's law. It's repugnant to you. You really don't want to say that. You know, there are people who will give you the idea that there are Christians in Sunday observing churches. I won't. I'll never give you that. I'll never agree to that. There's no such thing. Absolutely not. There are people of good character. There are people with Christian characteristics. There are people who think they believe in Christ, and it's not the real Jesus Christ of your Bible or mine, not in race, not in height, shape, weight, texture, color of hair and eyes, not in general appearance. They've got a completely false Christ from a very popular picture hanging in Bible bookstores and in some Bibles in their mind that almost automatically leaps into their mind's eye when somebody says Jesus Christ. The real Jesus Christ could walk up to them in a supermarket, bump into them, knock them down, pick them up and say, oh, I'm awfully sorry, here, let me help you with your vegetables and so on, dust them off, send them on their way, and they wouldn't even know that they'd run into him. They wouldn't have the faintest idea, I just met Christ, because they don't have the faintest idea what he looks like, what he would sound like. Many of them will look you in the eye because of anti-Semitism and deny that he is a Jew. There are black religions, black Baptists in the United States, who will look you in the eye and claim that because it says in Revelation, the first chapter, that his hair is white like wool, that he looks like Ben, what's his name, on, on the uh, cable uh, satellite uh, religious network. I can't think of his name. And because they, they, they don't think that it means color, they think it means texture. And they say, see, we got woolly heads. And it says white like wool. So, see, Jesus was a black man. People have got to have something that caters to their idea about Jesus Christ. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Awfully strong words. Does that mean deliberately? Can you be a liar and not know you're lying? Sure. All you've got to do is tell the lie that somebody else fed you. You didn't invent it. You are not necessarily of utterly, totally corrupt character because you pass on a lie, but you are a liar, and you are lying 
if you pass it on to somebody else because it is a lie. They believe a lie, it says. But whoso keepeth his word, that means obey it, not just believe it, but do it, obey it. In him verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know we that we are in him. He that says he abides in him, he lives in Christ, ought himself also so to live, as it should be in the Greek, even as he walked or lived. Notice in verse 15, love not the world. That is a tough one, isn't it? What is there about this world that you tend to love? Well, there are places we could go. We could all think about going to some of the great resorts. We could think about going to Hawaii. We can think about maybe up some little harbor in Maine, go out and look at the lobster fishing fleet. We can think of some wonderful places like in the South Island of New Zealand, go down to a church named City, Christ Church, one of the most beautiful cities I've been in. Oh, there are a lot of things about the world, but not only the rocks and rills and the purple hills and the cornfields and all that, but also the things of society. What is there about the world you love? What about the game shows? What about the sitcoms? I've never watched them. What about the uh, soaps, as they call them, the daytime things that millions upon millions of housewives tune into and watch just absolutely, you know, with incredible voracious delight, just love to drink in that which is available in this world. I think that I have darkened the door of a movie theater in Tyler maybe three times in the last 16 years. I doubt it. Maybe it's only been twice. And I remember distinctly on one occasion, and it's at least 12 years ago since I've been near one, I got up after, shortly after it started and walked out. Left the rest of them there and came back and picked them up and the movie was over. I couldn't stand it. I just, I'm sorry, I'm a maverick that way, I guess. Uh, immediately, Good Morning America, every morning, or there's another program, I forget, has a Hollywood minute. They don't get my minute. My minute's more important than that. I don't care what Hollywood is doing. I don't care who's on it. I don't care who they're talking about. It makes no difference to me at all to look, have somebody interview this actor or this actress and say, is it difficult for you being on the road away from your children like that all the time? You know, I, I really don't care about that. I don't want to know about the terrible trauma that multimillionaires go through whose names are up on marquees of theaters. How much of a part of this world were you when you grew up? I don't know about you, but I was so submerged in it that you'd have to go plowing through there with fins and goggles on, dive all the way to the bottom and scour the mud off the bottom to get me up there where you could identify me because I was as deep into this world and as much a part of it as I could be. I was wallowing in it. I was doing backstrokes through it. I wanted to be so much like my peer group in school and in high school that I just died like all, almost all kids, believe it or not, no matter whether you look like the neighborhood bully or whether you were the homecoming queen or the basketball star, almost all of us went through a time when we suffered from tremendous feelings of inferiority, where we wanted to be thought of far more than we suspected other people thought of us, where we were afraid that the opinions of other people were far less than we could have wished, where we felt we were behind the door when the brains and the good looks were passed out. I was a little bitty sawed-off runt. We were so short, people always were thinking when I answered the telephone it was a girl. Uh, they, they'd say, Miss, is your, is your daddy home? I'm not, Miss. I'm a boy. You know, but anyway, <clears throat> some of you may have had that happen to you when you are a kid before your voice changed. But I'd stand around on the corner store, told about when I first got into junior high school with a cigarette sticking out of my face. I may age about 14, 
and I'm trying to look like I'm at least 39, just came back from the war. Here's my scar. And I wasn't impressing anybody. I'm just ruining my lungs. I smoked for eight years, and finally, over a terrible, terrible struggle in uh, late night or middle 1953, I guess, was able to conquer that habit with God's help. But I'll tell you, that was very, very difficult. So I did it all. I've got these ugly tattoos all over my body. The alcohol was part of it. The smoking was part of it because it was being in step with everybody else. No one ever thought that he was in, like I did, walking the streets of Springfield, Oregon, in about 1949, with my black naval uniform, with my cap and a little band on it that said the name of my ship, and with my pipe in the rain turned upside down. Oh, man, that was cool. I mean, when you get that bottle and poke it down and get it burning real good, you can walk and turn it upside down. The smoke is swirling. I'm walking on bell bottom, and here's the smoke going out behind me. I'm smoking my pipe upside down, man. I mean, did I ever look navy. I was swabby, man. I've been there. I know what that's like. And that's this world. That is absolute vanity. Now notice what he says. All that is in the world. I know you don't want to believe this when you're 16. A lot of us didn't want to believe it when we were 26. Some of us were still clinging to it when we were 36. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, fleshly appetites. I don't care whether it's gambling, entertainment, what you're going to eat, all the fatty foods, the soft drinks, the booze, it doesn't matter. Something that you ingest, something you put in your ear, under your eyelid, between your cheek and gum, just a little pinch between your cheek and gum. Remember the guy that used to be a Dallas cowboy that would come on and talk about putting that filthy stuff between your cheek and gum? Take a look at it after you had it in there a little while. I play golf with a guy that I keep telling him, Bob, you're level-headed because your tobacco juice is flowing out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. <clears throat> and he will ride with me in my car, and he has got a plastic cup. Now, he's good about that because he doesn't just roll the window down and go, ping, you know, and then it spews all over the side of the truck in the slipstream. Instead, he's got this cup. And every now and then, he, and here's this cup just kind of covered with this chocolate-looking substance coming out of his mouth. Well, believe me, when you look at the lust of the flesh, the craving of the human flesh, as I've said time and time again, that little bitty cigarette, remember my ode to the cigarette? I wrote a little poem and read it to you about how they get down and bow before the great cigarette and so on. It isn't your mind that does that to you. It's your fingertips. It's your capillaries that feed every part of your body that has you hooked on a substance which is a narcotic and which is powerfully addictive, no matter what the tobacco industry says. I know how hard I had to struggle to get over it. It is terribly and powerfully addictive, but so is food to some people. And so is body, senseless, nonsensical humor to some people. And so is gambling to some people. There are those who are hypochondriacs who are convinced that they're absolutely sick when they look like they're a picture of health. All kinds of problems. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Oh, I want to see that. Look out. If somebody even has a little fender cruncher on the freeway, what happens? Do people go at normal speed while they put the junk off to the side and start standing there and argue about it? No, it's called rubbernecking. What's happening at the O.J. Simpson residence right now today? The traffic police are out there trying to control the crowds. The neighbors are going crazy. They've shown a map of how to get there on national television. And people want to, oh, I want to see where that happened. <gasps> right there's where the bodies were. What kind of an appetite is it? Is that, you think that's normal? I think many people in this room would say that's not normal. But that's the way a lot of us were. 
People can't help but rubberneck an automobile accident or a murder scene. I'll never forget the lady I talked about in Las Vegas, and the police came by because it was a gangland shooting right at the curb outside of her home. The blinds were down, she was sitting in there watching television, and the rat-a-tat-tat of a submachine gun and some pistols were going off, and they blew to bloody rags two or three people in this car, and the police are trying to canvass the neighborhood to find out if there was an eyewitness who could identify who did it. And knocked on the door, the dear little lady came to the door, said, ma'am, did you hear anything going on out here a while? Well, yes, I thought I did, but she was watching her favorite television show. She didn't want to get up from it. The name of the show? Gunsmoke. I told that on my radio program many times. I'll never forget the clipping. I was so astonished. It was so absolutely ironic that that was the appetite. Remember the Kitty Genovese case that I told about many, many years ago? of the people, several of them, in like a 7 to 14 high-rise apartment building, looking out their windows, seeing an attacker chasing this woman, repeatedly stabbing her. She is crying and screaming for help, and they canvassed the group because some of them saw other people leaning out the windows and looking. Not a one of those people would come to her aid. I think somebody finally called the police, and when they began asking them questions, well, they didn't want to get involved. And there are stories, too. I could tell you of a clipping that I got just last week of a woman who was in an automobile accident, I think somewhere back east. She was driving by herself in a car. It went down an embankment, and it flipped over, and she was hanging there trapped in that car, upside down, still in a seat belt. A man pulled over to the side and went down there and found her there in that car, got in the door, started tearing her clothes off, and raped her. This is the society in which you live. Welcome to my world. Isn't that the way he sang it? It's a wonderful world. It's a big, wide, wonderful world we live in. Isn't it wonderful? It's a wonderful world. And God says it's of Satan the devil. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You heard about the Colombian, didn't you? You know, it's incredible that the World Cup has come to America's shores. They used to let those people kill each other in Argentina or somewhere in Europe or down in a banana republic where they've actually stampeded and killed hundreds of people and had riots and had to call out segments of the army and fire into the crowd. But now they're doing it in the United States of America. You're ahead of me. You heard about it, didn't you? The Colombian who accidentally scored a goal for the opposing team came out of a bar in Medellin, Colombia, and three or four people met him outside, calling him filthy names, you dirty so-and-so, here's so much for the score you gave the other team, and just shot him full of holes, killed him. So much for sport. You've heard the cases of the British soccer fans going to Europe, literally beating people to death in their frenzy. Look out when you go to a football game, especially look out if you're in Chicago, because if they win, they're going to kill you. I don't know what happens when they lose, but I know that if they win, the chances are you might get killed if you join in the celebration. We've seen it. We see it on TV. It's in the world. All that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. But the world, this society, this civilization is what is implied, passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Notice in 1 John, the third chapter, in verse 4, we know this scripture by heart. Many people have it memorized. Whoso committeth sin transgresseth also the law, 
for sin is the transgression of the law. Genesis 13, 13 says, The men of Sodom were sinners before the eternal. And it says the word exceedingly. Sinners exceedingly before God. So sin was in the world before the giving of the Decalogue, wasn't it? It says where no transgression is, where no, there is no law. You've got to have a law in order to have transgression. There was a law being transgressed, or sin could not have been in the world at Sodom. The men of Sodom could not be called sinners exceedingly before God long prior to the giving of the Decalogue. The Decalogue did not create the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue merely codified the Ten Commandments in the most durable form of printing or of keeping, in this case, like pictographs, known to man. Far longer lasting than vellum, and someday they will resurface again, no doubt, from wherever they've been hidden. And I think that that's going to be a phenomenon that may well occur, which might even, I've always fascinated, been fascinated by what it would do to spark the incredible religious fervor in the Middle East among the Israelis, which would cause them in the midst of a war, no doubt, already a new round of war getting going, and probably some of Yasser Arafat's moves in his call for Jerusalem to become the capital of a Palestinian state is laying the framework for some of that. But I've often wondered what it would be that would cause such a religious fervor, such a gigantic riotous return to religion, that they would set up temple sacrifices and they would literally bulldoze the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque out of the way. Just destroy them, remove the rubble, and build a temple in their place. Is that going to happen? I don't know. They could build another building and let both of them be right nearby, and the Jewish temple could be someplace else, and they could still claim it is on a site adjacent to, close to, or partly upon where the old temple used to be. I don't know. But if they were to discover the Ark of the Covenant, and if in that Ark were to be the original, the second set, of course, because he broke the first set, but the original Ten Commandments, the stone jar that contained sample samples of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the original Torah of the Bible. Now, I was discussing that in my office many years ago with Dr. Robert Kuhn. I said, Bob, you know, that may be what is going to trigger this religious fervor in Jerusalem to bring about the raising to the ground of the Dome of the Rock and so on, would be the discovery of the Ark of the Covenant. I didn't know that he was going to take that idea and run with it, but he did, and he and Stanley Rader got together, and I didn't understand what he was doing night after night after night, but for months and months and months, the two of them were writing, and they wrote, and they wrote, and they wrote, and they wrote a story almost exactly parallel to a movie by Steven Spielberg called Raiders of the Lost Ark. They sued Steven Spielberg. I don't know the outcome of that because he got their idea, which I gave to Robert Kuhn, and he, with his movie-making genius, turned it into a gargantuan box office success called Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I guess it had all kinds of fantastic scenes, nothing like I'd remotely imagine. I'm just talking about maybe there would be some deep place way underground in Jerusalem or out in the hill country someplace in a cave that they knew way back when, because it disappears from history in the Bible, that eventually that, that would be brought to light. An interesting thing in passing, but absolutely true that the Ten Commandments codified, given to Moses and through him to the Israelites, did not bring the Ten Commandments into existence, but merely codified what had already been in existence, what God had revealed to Adam, to all the patriarchs, 
what he revealed to his people, even as Moses was revealing them the Sabbath, and people were being put to death for rebelling against the Sabbath prior to the giving of the Decalogue in the book of Exodus. You read that. Sin is the transgression of the law. Now, in verse 22 of the third chapter of 1 John, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Here's where they get this twist, this little spin they put on the scripture I read to you earlier. And this is his commandment. So you see, honor thy father and thy mother. Well, that's not included. Thou shalt not kill. Well, that's not included. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Forget that one. That's not included. Thou shalt not covet. Forget that one. Have no other gods before thee. No. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So, too, the Sunday-keeping, Christian-professing religions, that nice, flowery, beautiful scripture, seemingly a little ambiguous, is the one that sets aside every other scripture in the New Testament writings, especially of John and the book of James, that Luther called an epistle of straw, which talks about works with your faith or else your faith is dead, and sets them aside and says it negates the Ten Commandments. He that keeps his commandments, plural, dwells in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. 1 John 5 and verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Does that say Jesus Christ? No. Does it say a new commandment of Christ? No. It says God, Theos, which is the exact Greek counterpart of Elohim in the Hebrew. And keep his, God's, commandments. There can be no mistaking the fact that that is the Ten Commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Oh, yes, they are, says the world. Oh, are they ever. And the worst one you could ever accept, because it makes you look like such a weirdo, is the Sabbath. That's why I've predicted, and I will say so publicly, because I've said so privately too many times. I'm sure it's gotten out by now. I give the worldwide three to five years to tamper with, to bring Sunday equal with the Sabbath, I give them three to five years to gradually negate it and to get it to the point where eventually you won't be required to keep the seventh-day Sabbath at all. Because as long, I don't care how hard they work to shuck and to shed the idea or the, the label of cult, and they're working hard to do it, they're embracing the Trinity, they're embracing born again, all these wonderful doctrines they're backing into. But until they get rid of the Sabbath, they're always going to be a cult by the mainstream. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is called by the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church a cult. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a huge church compared to worldwide. They've got hospitals, they've got schools and colleges. You know, they're a great, big, and an extremely wealthy church. The Mormon Church. They keep Sunday, but because of some weird ideas that they've got, they're called, by the mainstream, a cult. So I'm telling you that worldwide, with its machinations and all the chicanery going on, all the political expediency going on, 
is going to have to eventually get rid of the Sabbath. I'm just predicting that that's the road down which they're going. Now, if they suddenly go some other direction, I'll be dumbfounded, because the road down which they're traveling says that eventually they're going to have to get rid of the Sabbath. If that's what their motive is, to be like this world, to be like every other part of the world. Now, I applaud the fact that they recently achieved accreditation. It gives me a little, a little boost, because at long last, even though I know that when uh, people have got the identical same degree I did way, way back when at about the same time, in some cases a year or two or three earlier, like Herman Hay, and later on Rod Meredith, and for all those years they've been doctor. Well, I have always negated that and said that doesn't make any sense because that was an unaccredited institution. So I didn't claim to be a doctor. Well, now I can. So from now on, I will expect every one of you to address me as doctor. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you don't have to do that. Ted's good enough. Garner Ted is fine. But at least that sheepskin on my wall has a certain value, not in God's sight probably, but in, let's say, Harvard or Yale. I could go there now and I could say, you know, this is my degree, and they would recognize it as being on the same standing of anybody else's because it's retroactive back to the time that that, that was given. So that's interesting. All right, the Sabbath is the one major sticking point. It was the test commandment. I want to go to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews now and uh, take you through just a little bit of that and try to come to a quick conclusion here. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. I think all of you know that the great Sunday-keeping churches of this world all say that anyone who keeps the seventh-day Sabbath is a member of a cult. And the greatest problem that people have with jobs, fathers and breadwinners and wage earners and homeowners is the Sabbath. This world is a Saturday, you know, binge. Uh, Saturday is the greatest trading day. It's always been that way in farming communities because Saturday was the day when all the farmers came to town. It is the day of the great sports events. Friday night is the greatest night out for the world. The honky-tonks and bars and movies and parties and just anything that goes on. The great football games and basketball games and sporting events in high schools and colleges are Friday nights. It's all geared to Sunday observance. Sunday, quiet, everybody's asleep, you sleep in late, the church is going gong, gong down there somewhere, and you wake up, you're all sleepy about 8.30 or 9 o'clock, by 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock, you go off to church. At Emerald Bay, where I live, everybody, I mean, the golf course, absolutely empty on early Sunday morning. Here go the cars by the dozens. I mean, they've got four times this, this kind of a crowd at the little community church over there every Sunday morning at Emerald Bay. And then as soon as church is out, the golf course is just miraculously filling up with people, but not till church is out. And that's absolutely typical of thousands of American cities and towns because we are geared to a Sunday, day of the sun, Sun, solar, solar invictus, solus invictus, as it was called, worshiping uh, society. Leading up to this in the third chapter, the Apostle Paul is urging them, exhort one another daily, verse 13, while it is called today. Isn't it interesting that the translators knew that that should have special emphasis, and the way it is set apart in the Greek, while it, something or other, is called today. This day. Now, you think, as you read that, that means just in this general time, or in this dispensational period, or during this chapter of your life. No, it doesn't at all. It means on the Sabbath. It means on the Sabbath. If I had the time, I could go back and absolutely demonstrate to you that the Israelites crossed over a Sabbath day's journey from one bank 
of that narrow little Jordan River to the other bank, set up 12 stones, went over dry shod, and it was on that day, and it was a Sabbath day, that Joshua made his pronouncement, this time, don't harden your hearts like your fathers did in the wilderness. A whole new generation was entering into the promised land. It is typical and symbolic of the Christian eventually entering into the kingdom of God, and it was a weekly Sabbath day when that great proclamation was made. And here he's referring to that. Exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I won't read all of that, but he's talking about those who provoked, verse 16, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, verse 17, who sinned. And verse 18, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Isn't it interesting? The Sabbath is the day on which God rested. He blessed the Sabbath day. We, give our, we see the picture of six days for man's work, the seventh day for rest and worship of God, six days, 6,000 years for man's government, seventh, 1,000 years for God's government, and it is called the millennial rest. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, talking about the millennial reign in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Present progressive. Present. We enter into rest. We have, we observe, we enter into a time when we rest. What day is that? Tuesday? Look at the emphasis here. As I have sworn in my wrath, shall they, as it really should read out of the diaglot in the original Greek, shall they enter into my wrath with the way they're acting, with the way they're disobeying and breaking my laws, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world? For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. He, God, spake about the Sabbath concerning this subject of which I am writing to you. Is that clear, English students? It's not clear to the Sunday-keeping churches, but it's as clear as the nose on your face in the Word of God, and you can't get around it. In this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. What's he talking about? The picture of the promised land as a type of the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the entry into the promised land on a weekly Sabbath day. He, God, spake in a certain place in the Old Testament, about the Sabbath day, the seventh day concerning this. Seeing therefore, verse 6, it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, the diaglot says disobedience. Again, he limiteth a certain day. Paraphrase, diaglot, he sets apart, he puts in brackets, he puts in a box, a certain day. saying in David, Today, same language as Joshua, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua, correct uh, translation, not Jesus, not Eosius, not the Messiah, but Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore... Look at your margin, if it has it like mine, mine is the 
King James Bible with the Philadelphia Press that has it right in the margin, but all the other Diaglot and all the others have it, Westcott and Hort, the exhaustive, com uh, the exhaustive concordances, commentaries, and so on. Here's the original, right out of the original manuscripts. There remaineth therefore a keeping of the Sabbath to the people of God. The translators back during 1611 deliberately obfuscated this word because they were a Sunday-keeping church that had come out of Mother Rome. They weren't about to allow the word sabbatismos in the Greek. Sabbatismos, to your ear, inescapable reference to the Sabbath. The ismos part is a keeping of, a sabbatical or a sabbathing, a sabbathing, a sabbatismos. There remaineth therefore a keeping of the Sabbath to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he has also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, the millennial rest eventually, but also the weekly Sabbath every week, lest there any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For if for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of mind and spirit, of soul and spirit, of suke and numa, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That happens to be a passage of the Bible that has just got through doing exactly that. I find it altogether appropriate that a description of the Word of God that comes just like a sword, slicing right to the marrow of a big thigh bone, that it cuts so deep it is like a giant injury to the heart of disobedient, Christ-professing people in this world. I know you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. Bless his holy name. They're going to be saying on Sunday, tomorrow, if you think they will look at the Word of God and keep this seventh-day Sabbath, you and I are both absolutely as crazy as a loon because they're not going to do it. They rebel and they will not obey God. What is a Christian? I'll tell you what a Christian is according to the Word of God, not the dictionary. A Christian is one who believes God, who knows what is sin, who has seen that he is a sinner and deeply repented of sin, which is the breaking of the tenets of God's Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath day, has been baptized, Romans 6, has received the laying on of hands, and has received the Holy Spirit of God. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, and has the Holy Spirit of God, which creates a new creature in Christ, living, dwelling, gradually developing within him, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Your life is hid with God in Christ, who is then living a life of overcoming this world with all of its temptations and its human, physical uh, attractions, its lusts, and so on, who loves God with all of his heart because he can look at a flower or a hummingbird or a beautiful sunset or hear the laugh of a baby and know that God created it and God produced it and he loves the creator in his handiwork and who loves the brethren. And finally, a Christian is one who probably someday is going to be killed for all of that.